Thanks for everybody joining us this morning here at Prairie View. It is Mission Sunday. That's why we had the missions can up here uh, collecting change for Pine Haven. That's why we had the recap from our Pine Haven group that traveled there this past week. On top of that, we also have Alex and Laura Logan, uh, newlyweds here. They are missionaries that our church supports. They're preparing to do mission work to children and teenagers in Japan. So if you get a chance to say hello to them before the service is over today, make sure you pop over and greet them. It's also Kid City Sunday, so thanks to all the kids for being here this morning. Uh, We're grateful that you're worshiping with us, and we'll shortly have something uh, for you, an acknowledgement of one of your accomplishments in Kid City uh, after the sermon is over. So, as we continued last week in the book of 1 Corinthians, we discussed a second problem that Paul had heard about at the church in Corinth. And that problem was public and unrepentant sexual immorality within the church. Now, just as bad as the sin issue itself for Paul was the Corinthians lack of response to it. You see, not only did the Corinthians ignore this issue, they tolerated or maybe even celebrated this sin. Thus, Paul commands them to do something that they refuse to do, something that many of us today find unthinkable. Paul commands the Corinthians to kick this man out of their church. It sounds harsh and it sounds cruel, but this is to be done for both the good of the man and for the good of the church as a whole. The goal of this kind of drastic measure is to bring the man to a state of repentance in order that he might be reconciled to both God and his fellow believers and that he would ultimately be restored to the church community. But on top of that, Paul seeks to restore the church's floundering reputation within the surrounding community Of unbelievers. Now, like we saw with the problem of division in week one, this problem also had a deeper cause. And the cause was that the Corinthians had a mistaken view of how their relationship with God, their spirituality, related to their physical bodies. Many of them believed that as long as they were spiritual, they could do whatever they wanted with their bodies. We often buy into the same lie today. As long as I go to church or give to the church, who cares what I do with my body, right? As long as I love Jesus in my heart, who cares what I do with my physical body? But the truth is that that's not how it works within the Christian faith as God's word presents it. We can't separate our spirituality from what we do with our bodies because our bodies belong to God. Because Christ died for our bodies. Our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. We as Christians believe in resurrection, meaning that one day our physical bodies will actually be raised by God. So, yes, God does care what his people do with their bodies because we were bought with a price. And that price wasn't cheap. That price required Christ's body broken on the cross, his blood shed on the cross. And because of what Christ did for us, we seek to glorify God with our bodies. Now, today we see a third problem at the church in Corinth, and that's this. Everywhere you look at this church, relationships are breaking down. Now, the breakdown takes multiple different forms. It happens for multiple different reasons. But for Paul, any type of relational breakdown within the family of God is something to be mourned and grieved. It's heart-wrenching for Paul. 
Because this local church in Corinth is collectively a temple of the Holy Spirit. This is a household of God, a family in the body of Christ. And so Paul calls them to love each other as such, like that household, like that family, instead of letting relationships break down and fall apart. So let's open this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 1. You're welcome to follow along with us in the Bibles that we provide and take one home with you if you don't own a Bible. But before we do any reading, let's pray together and then we'll jump into 1 Corinthians. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the privilege that we have of coming together and hearing from your word, the privilege that we had of sending a group to Pine Haven, the privilege that we have of supporting Alex and Laura and their ministry in Japan that will soon be coming. Uh, God, watch over those people who went on that trip. Watch over Alex and Laura. Watch over those ministries as well. Father, again, we're so grateful that we can come here together and call ourselves your children. It's not because we're worthy. It's not because we had any right to it. It's not because we earned it through being good enough or moral enough or holy enough. It is purely by your grace that we can call ourselves your sons and your daughters. So, Father, I pray that as we hear from your word this morning, as we leave this place when the service is over, that we would live as your children in the world around us. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for the sacrifice that was made the price that was paid for our sins on our behalf by your son, Jesus. We ask all these things in his name. Amen. All right. First Corinthians chapter six, verse one. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother. And that before unbelievers to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters nor adulterers nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So the first example of relational breakdown in Corinth arises when two members of the church have a disagreement. One believer thinks that he has been defrauded, that he has been cheated by another believer. The text seems to indicate that it was some kind of business deal, financial transaction gone wrong. So the man who feels he was wrong, the plaintiff, you might call him, takes the man who wronged him, the defendant, you could call him, to the public civil court in the marketplace, right in the center of Corinth. 
Now, Paul is furious about this situation for several different reasons. Number one, Paul identifies the case as trivial. In the big scheme of things, this is a minor dispute. Paul is incredibly frustrated that something so minor could cause such division between two brothers in Christ. You can imagine Paul looking at these two men and reminding them that they are brothers in Christ. They are sons of God. These Corinthians claim to be so wise, and yet they can't even put their heads together and work this situation out. You can't blame Paul for being annoyed. But not only does Paul find the issue trivial, he's frustrated that these two believers have gone for unbelievers' resolution. You can imagine Paul looking at the two men and saying, look, guys, do you have any idea how bad this looks? You two are making fools of yourselves. You're making God's church a laughingstock within the Corinthian community that we're trying to reach. And guys, hearing about the appalling sexual immorality that you put up with, and now hearing about the petty disagreements that you sue each other over, why would any of the unbelievers in Corinth want anything to do with Christ? Why would any of those believers want anything to do with the church if this is the kind of stuff they're seeing? That's why Paul is so angry. But on top of that, Paul's frustrated that these two men are more concerned about their rights than about displaying the love of Christ for all to see. These two men are dividing the church inside. They're hurting the church's reputation outside. And it's all because neither of them is willing to swallow their pride and simply take a loss. That's why Paul says that there will be no winner in this case. There will be no winner here. The fact that the dispute has gotten this far already makes both of these men losers. And finally, Paul's frustrated that these men are acting like those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. Instead of living like the people who they are because of Christ, brothers in Christ, sons of God, they've reverted back to living like they were before they met Christ. And if you want to see just how serious Paul is about this petty dispute within the body of Christ, look at the sins that he lists it next to. He says, you're acting just like those people. And those sins are sins that we in the church are often all too eager to point out. But we could let a sin like this get swept under the rug. Now, this is all not to say that there is never a place for civil litigation within the church. There are lots of churches that have gotten in trouble in the past for trying to handle things in-house that should have been reported to civil authorities. But something like this? A petty disagreement between two believers? Come on. The late Justice Antonin Scalia writes, I think that this passage, talking about 1 Corinthians, I think that this passage, I'm grateful that some Supreme Court justices still look at the Bible, has something to say about the proper Christian attitude towards civil litigation. Paul is making two points. Paul says that the mediation of a mutual friend, such as the local elder, should be sought before two parties run off to the law courts. I think we are too ready to see vindication or vengeance through adversary proceedings rather than peace through mediation. Good Christians, just as they are slow to anger, should be slow to sue. 
Unfortunately, in this passage, these two men are doing exactly what that quote said. They're more concerned with vindication or vengeance than they are with peace through mediation. So here we see the first example of relationships amongst the Corinthian Christians falling apart. Instead of loving each other like brothers, these two men are living as enemies. They're living as opponents. They're living as adversaries. And they're dishonoring God, making fools of themselves, and tainting the church's reputation in the community in the process. But here's the thing. These two men aren't the only people in Corinth who are guilty. Other relationships are crumbling too. And they're relationships that are supposed to be the strongest relationships of all. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So it's not just business relationships that are falling apart amongst the Christians. Marriages are falling apart, too. Last week, we talked about the extreme views that some of the Corinthians had about marriage, had about sex. The idea that as long as they're spiritual, then they can do whatever they want with their bodies. Well, here we see the opposite extreme from other Corinthians. Some of the Corinthians believe that intimacy with their spouse somehow taints their spirituality, somehow cheapens their relationship with God, somehow makes them a little bit less holy. And because of these false and extreme views of marriage, those relationships are suffering. They're breaking down. Now, there are other issues the Corinthians are dealing with when it comes to marriage as well. All throughout chapter 7, there are questions of whether or not a follower of Christ should marry in the first place. There are questions of divorce. When is it acceptable? When is it not acceptable within the kingdom of God? What comes after divorce? There are questions about the value of being single within the kingdom of God. And all these questions are difficult. All these questions are challenging. All these questions demand prayer and demand wisdom and demand discernment. But Paul makes it clear that devotion to Christ should be the ultimate criterion for answering all of those questions. That as you look at relational breakdown around you, as you look at marriage, how does devotion to Christ shape those things? How does devotion to Christ shape the decision whether or not to marry someone? How does devotion to Christ shape the issue of divorce? How does devotion to Christ shape the life of a single adult? Devotion to Christ is the number one priority that Paul calls them to focus on. Now, I'd encourage you to read 1 Corinthians 7 on your own, the rest of the chapter. I'd encourage you to wrestle with and pray through Paul's responses to All of those questions. 
I'd also encourage you to listen to our sermon on marriage from June 5th, which can be found on our website. Talk to me, talk to one of our elders if you're wrestling with those issues. But the main point for today's sermon is this. We have yet another example of relations in Corinth that are breaking down. There is division left and right. And we're not just talking about business relationships like in chapter 6. We're even talking about marriages. Now think about it. Within the body of Christ, if you've been a member of this church or any church for any period of time, have you ever had a relationship breakdown? Have you ever had a friendship that went sour? Have you ever had a relationship with a church leader that somehow suffered? Have you ever had some kind of disagreement, some kind of dispute, and that relationship was simply never the same, even though that person was your brother or sister in Christ? Well, 1 Corinthians 6 gives us a wonderful example of what not to do, how not to handle it. Think about those questions of marriage. If you've been in a marriage before, you know that marriage isn't easy. You know that it doesn't always come naturally. Have you ever wrestled with the questions that we see in chapter 7? Have you ever wrestled with the question of divorce or been through a divorce? Maybe you're wrestling with that question now. Paul points us to devotion to Christ to shape our answers, to shape our responses. How does devotion to Christ change that relationship when we're tempted to end it? How does devotion to Christ change that dispute when we really just want to get our way? How does devotion to Christ change that marriage when we're tempted to just break it off and start over? Those are the questions that Paul challenges us to consider. But we also have to ask the question, why is this happening in Corinth? Why are all these different relationships falling apart? What's the deeper cause? There was a deeper cause to the first issue in chapters 1 through 4, a deeper cause to the issue in chapter 5. So what's the deeper cause of these issues here? Well, maybe we can find out starting in chapter 12. 1 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers... I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. However, you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Remember those two words, the common good of the church. So Paul reminds us again of the centrality of Jesus as Lord, the work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts and minds of believers. He says no one can truly reject Jesus If they have the Holy Spirit, those two things simply can't coexist. And likewise, no one can truly worship Jesus apart from the Holy Spirit. But what does this have to do with relational breakdown? Well, Paul is reminding these people of who they are. He's reminding them that they have the Holy Spirit. 
He's reminding them that they are children of God. He's reminding them that Jesus really is their Lord, that they have not rejected Jesus. Now they are called to live like it, to not live like the pagans they once were, but to be changed, to be different, to be transformed into the people that God is making them to be. But then seemingly out of nowhere, he starts talking about spiritual gifts, spiritual gifts. God has given different gifts to all kinds of different people, all through the same spirit, all for the common good of the church. He lists all kinds of gifts, some of which we'll talk about in the weeks ahead. Gifts like wisdom and knowledge and discernment, healing, faith, prophecy, tongues. Now, okay, that's great and all. But what does this have to do with the relational breakdown that we're seeing in the church? Well, later in chapter 12, Paul compares the church to the human body. He says that with the human body, there are some parts that seem to be more important, seem to get more attention. I mean, think about it. There are some parts of the human body that you know really well. You know where they're located. You know what purpose they have. You know what value they offer. But then there are other parts of the human body that you really don't know where they are. You're really not all that sure what they do. You don't really see the value that they provide. But just like the human body needs all of its parts to function as God intends, the church needs all of its people with all of their gifts to function as God intends. And that even includes the parts, that even includes the people, that even includes the gifts that don't get all the attention, that don't get all the glamour, that don't get all the publicity. The point of the metaphor is that we all need each other within the church. Now, apparently that hasn't been the prevailing attitude in Corinth, has it? Relationships are breaking down because people seem to believe they really don't need each other. That man who's suing his brother, he's thinking, you know what? We don't really need him around. I don't need to consider him a brother in Christ. We don't need his gifts. We don't need his contributions. Those marriages. Some of those spouses seem to think that, you know what? I don't need my spouse. I have this deeper gift of spirituality, which makes them kind of redundant. I don't need them around. This has not been the prevailing attitude in Corinth, that they are a body that is united and they all need each other. Thus, the relationships are failing. And thus, the church is failing to fulfill its God-given role and its God-given potential. Okay, that sounds like that makes sense, right? The relational breakdown needs to cease if the church is going to be the church that God intends it to be. The Christians must stop allowing petty disagreements to get the best of them. They must stop letting their marriages falling apart for the sake of some kind of holiness or piety that is false. And they absolutely must realize their need for each other. But again... What's the deeper problem that has led to this breakdown? Chapter 12, verse 31. Earnestly desire the higher gifts. What are the higher gifts? Well, Paul tells us. And I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. 
And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, that when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Paul reminds these Christians whose relationships are crumbling of the centrality of love. That simple. The centrality of love. And the Corinthians need to be reminded of that because clearly they've forgotten all about that. That's the core problem of relationships at this church. They have forgotten what godly, Christ-like love really is. So Paul describes it for them. He reminds them of what it looks like. And based on his description in this passage, how do you think the Corinthians are doing? He says it's patient and kind. Have they been patient and kind? If Paul says that it does not envy or boast. Well, in chapter 3, verses 3 and verse 21, Paul specifically accuses them of jealousy and boasting. Paul says that it is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. Well, in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, they were arrogant. Paul called them arrogant. What about irritable or resentful? Well, in chapter 6, both of those men were irritable and resentful as they sued each other. What about rejoicing at wrongdoing and rejoicing in the truth? Well, again, in chapter 5, the Corinthians rejoiced at wrongdoing as they celebrated sexual immorality. The point of this passage isn't just to sound beautiful, even though it is. It's not just there to sound cute and sweet and romantic so you can read it at weddings. The passage is a stern warning to the Corinthians that they have been guilty of the exact opposite of love. Thus, it really isn't a big surprise that the relationships are falling apart. It really isn't a big surprise that the church has been unable to function in the way that God intends it to function. And all that other stuff that they spent so much time focusing on, flashy spiritual gifts, these big cutting-edge understandings of spirituality, theological divisions, whose teacher do you follow? Paul says all that stuff really doesn't matter. What will really matter in the end, what will sustain a church through thick and thin, is love. 
What really matters in a church is not whether or not you have the flashiest spiritual gifts. What really matters is whether or not the love of Christ is seen in that church by the Holy Spirit. That's what will sustain a church through the ups and downs of life and ministry. And love is what will make a church stick out to its surrounding community that doesn't believe. The Corinthians thought they had all these great ideas about wisdom. They thought all they had all these cutting-edge ideas of spirituality. They thought they had all these impressive spiritual gifts. But all along, they've gotten love wrong. And according to Paul, that's the most important thing. It's better than wisdom. It's better than knowledge. It's better than prophecy and tongues and healing. Love is better and more important than all of those things. It is the still more excellent way. One time on a Sunday morning, I had somebody come up to me immediately following the sermon. I'm really cranky immediately following a sermon, if you didn't know that. The last thing you ever want to do is talk about my sermon right after I'm done preaching, because I get really, really touchy about sermons. And right after the service was over, this person walked up to me and said, Hey, you know what the one thing is that this church is missing? And I thought, no, tell me, please, enlighten me. And that person then said, one of the flashy spiritual gifts that Paul talked about. That's the one thing that this church is missing. That's the silver bullet that will make this church successful and wonderful and great. And I remember thinking to myself, really? You think that's the one thing that we're missing? It's not unity. It's not love. It's not devotion to sound doctrine. It's not dependence upon God through thick and thin. You don't think we're missing that stuff. We have the market cornered on all that stuff, but we're missing this flashy spiritual gift. Anthony Thistleton writes, Paul would not have been unduly surprised that there's so much more debate and striving and many more books are devoted to spiritual gifts than to learning to love. He would simply recall Corinth and reflect. Nothing has changed. Love is our focus as a church. The love of God being seen within this community. All that other stuff, that may have a place. That may have a role. That may have a purpose. But love is what keeps us together. And if we are not willing to look at the love of Christ and to keep that as our number one focus and by the power of the Holy Spirit to put those things into practice, then we shouldn't be surprised when our relationships fall apart. And we shouldn't be surprised if our church ceases to be a light in our surrounding community. If love is not central. If the Corinthians are going to live as a household of God. If we are going to live as a household of God. If they're going to stop the relational breakdown in every corner of the church, they must return to an emphasis on love. And that's true for every church today. But a good question to ask is, okay, where can you find the love of God? Where do you look? What image should we remind ourselves of? Who should we emulate? Christ crucified. The message that Paul has been drilling into the Corinthians' heads. And that we so badly need drilled into our heads. 
day in and day out. The cross that is hanging above me right now has been here since this building first opened. And every single Sunday, we come together and we sing songs and we pray prayers and we open the word of God and we take communion and we give money. We do all these things that churches do all underneath that cross. And that cross is not just a decoration. It's not just there to make the room look a little more churchy. I pray that as we look at that cross every single Sunday morning, we would be reminded of what godly love looks like. That we would be reminded of Christ crucified, his body broken and his blood shed on our behalf. And Paul's prayer for the Corinthian church and my prayer for our church is that that love of Christ crucified would be lifted up above everything else. I pray that kind of love would infiltrate every single relationship that we have with each other. The relationships we have as brothers and sisters in Christ, wives and husbands, friends, neighbors, co-workers, even business partners, in the case of those two men in chapter 6. I pray that we would love each other and let God make the rest of the chips fall where he wants them to. And when we have disputes and disagreements, which we will, when we have questions about marriage or what to do or what not to do, When we're trying to put into practice the spiritual gifts that we believe God has given us. As we take that journey together as a church, as we try to do this together with all of our flaws and all of our imperfections. I pray that we would be governed by and that we would submit ourselves to the love of Christ crucified. And that we would let that shape everything that we do as a church. And every relationship that we have within this body of Christ. Let's pray. Father, it's so easy to look at a church and focus on all the wrong things. It's so easy to look at a church and ask how the church is doing financially or ask how big the staff is or how big the building is or how many programs they provide or what they're doing in the community or just all kinds of things. And and those things have a place and those things are there for a reason and those things can bring you great glory. But more than anything, I pray that your church, that this church would be a place where the love of Christ crucified can be seen. I pray that the love of Christ crucified would prevent us from tearing each other apart. That it would prevent relationships here from falling apart. I pray that if someone walked into this church for the first time and didn't know anything else about us, that they would leave and say, hey, you know what? For all its flaws and for all its weaknesses, that church embodies the love of Christ crucified for each other. So, Father, teach us to love Have mercy on us when we fail to love. Let us have mercy on each other when we fail to love each other. And may your son's love, the love of Christ crucified, shape everything we say and everything we do and everything about who we are as individuals in your kingdom and as a church in your kingdom. We love you. We praise you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.
If you are not yet a follower of Christ, I would encourage you to talk to our elders. They'll be standing at the sides of the room. They'd be happy to pray with you, happy to answer any of your questions, happy to talk with you about whatever struggles or challenges you might have weighing on your mind at this moment. Now, before we do sing our last song, we have one more thing to do in our service. Uh, it's Kid City Sunday, like we mentioned earlier. And if you didn't know this, our kids during our Sunday morning services, as they're tucked back in the corner, learning their lessons about Christ, they've been doing that for three years. And that has entailed a three-year curriculum going through the Bible. And in lots of churches, I've worked in children's ministry before, in lots of churches and lots of children's ministries, you select a curriculum and you commit to it for three or four years, and most of the time you never really see it through. You get a year in or a year and a half in and you switch curriculums for whatever reason or you just kind of drop it or you move to something else. That hasn't been the case here. For three years, our kids have been going through this exact same curriculum, going through the stories of the Bible, and they finished it, which is a rare feat, a rare accomplishment. Yeah. So in light of that, we wanted to bring the kids up who have been in Kid City for the past three years or maybe even less time than that and just honor them and recognize them for completing this curriculum. So if I could have Nancy come forward. And I believe we have certificates to give to children, so feel free to call names out. kids. We talk them up and then they don't even show up. There we go. So as Nancy mentioned, uh, several of these kids are not just done with the Kid City curriculum, but they're actually graduating from Kid City. So they will be in our Sunday service every single week. So we're very grateful for them. And before we close our service with a final song, uh, let's pray together as a church, uh, especially for those kids that we just recognized. Father, thank you again for this morning. Thank you for this time we've had together. Thank you for... The kids who have been faithfully attending class uh, for three years now, learning about your word, learning about what you've done in the past and what you're doing now and what you plan to do in the future. And so, Father, as all these kids uh, embark on different journeys, whether they're starting new school years or whether they're graduating from Kid City to be here on Sunday mornings with us every single week, uh, watch over those children. Uh, thank you for the teachers who have cared so much and invested so much time and effort and prayer uh, into teaching them. And I pray that we as a church would take very, very seriously our responsibility and our privilege to tell the children who come here about your character and about the love of your son, Jesus. 
We love you. We praise you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Again, as we sing this final song, we will have a lunch immediately following our service here in the sanctuary. Feel free to join us for that and have a great rest of your day.